Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Matthew. We're continuing in Matthew chapter 8 this morning. Matthew 8, we will look at Matthew 8, verses 18 to 22 this morning. As you turn there, I've always been fascinated with the Olympics and the athletes that compete in the Olympics. They, uh, similar to those of us who are running the Pack the Pantry next week, particularly it sounds like Pastor Scott, uh, they're very committed and dedicated athletes <laughs> training for years and years for this moment. Um, a little more committed than most of us running the Pack the Pantry next Sunday. It's estimated when the 2012 Olympics came around in London that the average athlete spent 10,000 hours training for that moment. Most, most of them left home and committed themselves wholly to training for their sport by the age of 14, some of them younger, completely committed to that sport. A lot of them moved different areas of the country uh, just to go and train in a particular gym or with a particular coach to hone their skill and invest in their skill. Their lives truly revolve around whatever it is they're competing in. It's a, it's a picture of the utmost dedication and commitment. And so you watch the Olympics and you see that moment unfold and you see this, all of the years of training come into that brief competition. It's an impressive feat. It's an impressive moment to see the dedication and commitment that we see in those athletes. We come to our text this morning as we've already considered and we've heard in the reading of the word that, that Daniel read earlier and, and considered. I think our text this morning should ask uh, or cause us to ask this question. How dedicated and committed am I to following Jesus? What, we, what type of commitment level am I wholeheartedly committed to following Christ? Or have I just kind of have one, one foot in and one foot out? Is a question we need to ask, a, a question that Christ calls us to ask as we look at the reality this morning that discipleship is costly. Let's read our text this morning, Matthew 8, beginning in verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Talking about the other side of the lake they're at. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. We come to this, this passage. The scene is said as a crowd gathers around Jesus. And, and that crowd, we know from, from our study last week, you know, we, we talked about this is getting into a, a section of Scripture, chapter 8 and chapter 9, where, where Jesus is focusing on, Matthew in particular is focusing on sharing about the healings of Christ, how Jesus went about and healed those in the land that he came in contact with. We talked about in verse 16 that, that it says that there's kind of this summary statement that that evening they, uh, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. He cast out the spirits of the word and healed all who were sick. And so you might guess that crowds would begin gathering around him. 
They, they're g- gathering around this one who is, who is showing unrivaled authority over physical and spiritual ailments. He's showing that he has unrivaled authority over both realms. And so as the crowd presses in, the crowd gathers about him, Jesus gives the command, let's go to the other side. But before he can get in the boat, and we see that if you look in in verse 23, it says, and when he got into the boat, so we know that 18 to 22 happens before they get into the boat. And so while they're still on the shore, before he can even get in, two men come up who would would be disciples. Those who would say, hey, I have an interest in following you. And what we're going to learn this morning is really more from Jesus' response than we do about the the statements that these two men make. The the statements that these two men make aren't aren't as informative as Jesus' response is as to why they are making these statements and what they are expressing and and what is perhaps problematic in, in what they share. But before we look at these two men and what they say and even the call to discipleship that we see here, the cost of discipleship, we need to just look at a a very important title, the Son of Man. We need to do a little theology lesson this morning first, okay? So look at verse 20. In verse 20, in Jesus' response to the man, the the man says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And and Jesus' response is this, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man. This is the first time that Jesus uses this reference, this title of himself in the book of Matthew. He says he is the Son of Man. This is actually Jesus' favorite way of of referring to himself in the Gospels. He does so in in over 80 times, I think it's 82 times in the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. Matthew has the most references to Jesus as the Son of Man with 30 references in there. And that title is always spoke by Jesus or someone quoting what Jesus said about himself. So that title, the Son of Man, is the most prevalent title that we see in all the Gospels about who Christ is and how he describes himself. Now, when we think about this and we think about the title, the Son of Man, if you go through and you just look at the different uh, descriptions of that and and when Jesus uses that title of himself, scholars have broken that up into three different categories. Just for your information, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but three different categories when Jesus refers to him as himself as the Son of Man. One are references to his work on earth, his work of healing and and forgiveness, the teachings of, of Christ here on earth. The second category are references to Jesus' sufferings to redeem his people. So he describes himself as the Son of Man when he's talking about redemption, his, his task of coming to redeem the people. And then third are references to the future or eschatological references of what would come in the end times, the return of the Lord. So those three categories kind of describe everything that we see when we see him using the title Son of Man. Now, Jesus does not call himself the Messiah. He calls himself the Son of Man. That does not mean that Jesus denies being the Messiah. I just want to point that out this morning, that he, he does not deny that he is the Messiah. Here's two references for you just so you understand that. John 4, 25 to 26, you might remember John 4 is the, the encounter of Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. And in the midst of that encounter, the woman at the well says to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, this is his reply, Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. 
So I'm he. So she said, I know the Messiah is coming. And Jesus says, that's me. I am the Messiah. So he, he says, it's me. Later in, in Matthew 16, Matthew 16, the, the passage where uh, Jesus has the interaction with the disciples, right? And he asks, he says, who do people say that I am? And they, they share, well, people say this and people say that. And he says, here's the question, though. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies in verse 15 to 17, you are the Christ or the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him. He didn't rebuke him. He didn't say, no, 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 I'm not. No, Jesus answers him and says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Okay, so Jesus does not deny the fact that he is the Messiah. If people say, yeah, I know the Messiah is coming. I am he, it's me. Okay, so Jesus was fully aware of his task and who he was as the Messiah. So the question is, why does he prefer then the Son of Man? Why does he so often refer to himself as the Son of Man? Well, the term Messiah is kind of a politically loaded term, right? So for the Jew, the Jew is waiting and they're anticipating the Messiah and that Messiah would come who would, who would conquer by force and come with a, a military conquest to, to root out the Romans and to free them of Roman rule. And so there's, there's kind of some weight to that and a misunderstanding to what that, would might, that might mean. If he says, I'm the Messiah, then people will go, oh, okay, then we know what we've anticipated. So instead, Jesus chooses to say the Son of Man. The Son of Man. I am the Son of Man. Perhaps a, a slightly politic, a little less loaded, perhaps um, a less heavy politically title of himself, right? When he says the Son of Man. But not only is it a little less loaded as far as the perception of the Jews, but it also has a great weight prophetically. There's great weight, a great foundation prophetically to the title, the Son of Man. Flip back in the Old Testament to Daniel 7. Daniel 7. Daniel is one of the minor prophets. He follows Ezekiel. It's kind of towards to the, the back of your Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7. Now, Daniel, as you turn there, you, you might remember Daniel was in exile, right? He, he was in exile, and you have the, the account of the, um, the, the fiery furnace. You have the account of Daniel in the lion's den. You have Daniel, who is a, a really an incredible picture and demonstration of what it means to, to how do you navigate a land and rulers and authorities over you that are ungodly. How do you walk in godliness in the midst of that, right? We've talked about that as Daniel is a picture of of how do we sort out when, do, when are we uh, obedient to governing authorities, even when we don't agree, agree with them, but then when, are we, uh, when do we also show civil disobedience for the glory of God, right? Daniel is, is all of that. When we come to Daniel 7, we come to a moment where Daniel shares visions that were given to him by the Lord. And in Daniel 7, he is given vision of four beasts. And what we want to look at today is simply two verses, Daniel 7, 13, and 14 where we will have a greater understanding of what Jesus means when he says the Son of Man. Hear the word of the Lord, Daniel 7, verse 13. Daniel says, I, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so Daniel, Daniel gives us this picture of one coming, and you can imagine, just, just think, we have the, the privilege of looking back, and when we think about one who would come from heaven, who is in the likeness of a man, what do we think? What do we understand? We instantly perceive and understand that that would be Christ, fully God, fully man. But consider just for a moment, if you're Daniel, and Daniel sees this vision, he's trying to relay, he's trying to articulate what he's seen, and he says, behold, with the clouds of heaven, that expresses deity. In, in, in the Old Testament, anything comes out of the clouds of heaven, that is divine. So he's expressing deity. He says, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a, a, a son of man. It, it's a man coming from the clouds. He's, I know he's divine, but he looks like son of man. And, and this one who comes, he, he came to the ancient of days. That, that is God, God, the Father, ancient of days. And he was presented before him. So he comes before God. And listen what's given to him. The Son of Man, to the Son of Man, what is given? He's given dominion, he's given glory, and he's given a kingdom. Now, now, we know that God has revealed to us and told us in Isaiah, he says, my glory I give to no other. But yet, the Son of Man is given dominion and glory. He's given a kingdom. And it's not some isolated kingdom as though it's a, a, a ruler of, of, of Babylon or, or Persia. Rome? No. This kingdom is one that is for all peoples, all nations, all languages that they might serve him. It is a kingdom that has a vast expanse. And it's a kingdom that does not end. It's a kingdom that has everlasting dominion. It's a kingdom that shall not pass away. And it shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man will be given divine authority and he will be worshipped. And we know that there is only one who is worthy of worship. There is only one who is to be worshipped. That's God himself. And here we see that he will be served. He will have dominion. He will be given glory. He will be given a kingdom that does not pass away. It's eternal in nature. This is the Son of Man. Now, the Jews knew this text. The Jews knew this passage of Daniel. They understood it. And now in Matthew 8, 20, Jesus refers to himself and he doesn't say, I'm a son of man. And that's important. Because in the Old Testament, you see that phrase in the Hebrew often, a son of man. And it's simply a way to distinguish or a way to say a man, a, a human being. Right? That's just what it's used for. But Jesus doesn't say, I'm a son of man. I'm, I'm just a man. Jesus says, I am the son of man. And so when he says, I am the son of man, he's making a very clear point that he is the one that Daniel spoke about. So when Daniel says, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came before the ancient of days and was presented to him a kingdom. Jesus says, I am the son of man. That's me. The one that Daniel spoke of, that's me. That's why it's important we come to the New Testament. We read texts like Galatians 4.4. 4. 
When we read Galatians 4.4, 4, we studied several weeks ago that Jesus is the Son of Man who came to heaven. He was God's own Son. It says God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. So He is fully God, fully man. He's born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Again, we understand the New Testament, Philippians 2, 6 through 8, that Jesus is the Son of Man that though He was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. What did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on cross. Or think about Matthew 28, 19 and 20. We had the Great Commission. How does Jesus begin? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He is the one who has all authority. He is the one who has dominion over all things. He is the one, Hebrews 1.3 tells us, who after making purification for sins, he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has been given dominion. He rules. He reigns. In Mark 14 61 to 62, Jesus is the Son of Man who answered the high priest's question. The high priest's questions, he says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, when he says this, do you know what ensues? Shouts of blasphemy. They know exactly what Jesus is saying. They know that when he says, I am the Son of Man and you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven, they know what he's referring to. He's referring to Daniel. He's saying, that is me. That's me. I'm the Son of Man. You look at, at Matthew 24, verse 30. Get over there. Matthew 24, start in verse 30 and 31. We read this, it says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This is talking about the end times, right? We talked about a category being Jesus talking about the end times. Now listen, verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Or you think about Revelation 7, 9 and 10, that great picture. We see the great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, from all peoples and languages gathered around the throne of the Lamb. And they're crying out, what? That salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. What did Daniel say? That kingdom is for all peoples, all nations, all languages. What do we see in Revelation? All people, all nations, all languages gathered around the throne in worship of our Lord. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. What do we see there? We see... Christ returning in victory. We see him returning in power. The one who comes and he comes riding on a white horse bringing judgment upon the nations and ascribed on his thigh is the title king of kings 
and Lord of lords. He is the one with eternal dominion. He is the one with dominion over all things. And he will return. Revelation 14, 14 to 16. Listen to this. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, and the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is the Son of Man. This is Christ. It's significant here in Matthew 8. This man comes to Jesus and he says what? Teacher. Teacher. I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, oh no, Jack. I'm the son of man. I'm not a son of man. I am the son of man. He is no just a not just a teacher. Jesus isn't someone that you just follow a little while because you appreciate the things he says. He's not one that you go, you know, I, I, that, that's interesting. I like his angle on that. I like his, his, his area of philosophy. I really appreciate the knowledge he shares. I, I like the morality of him. So I, I think I'll just follow him as a great teacher. He's just a really nice guru. He's a guide. He's an expert in the law that I could kind of just learn from. He's more than that. He's not just a teacher. He's the Son of Man, fully God, fully man, the God-man who came from heaven in the likeness of man. He's the one that Daniel prophesied of. Oh, the, the beauty of Scripture. The beauty of Scripture. That hundreds of years prior, God gives Daniel a vision of one coming in the clouds that is like the Son of Man. Then we see Jesus coming, and he says, I am the Son of Man. So when this scribe looks and he says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm the son of man. I'm not just a teacher. That scribe knows what he just said. That scribe gets it. That scribe goes, ooh, wow. Did he just say that? Yes. Jesus is making a very clear point. If you follow me, you're not following just some other teacher that is to be compared with other teachers that could get one-upped by another teacher. No, you're following God himself. If you're going to follow me, you're following the Son of Man. Listen, you need to realize the same is true today. The, the call to follow Christ is not the call to just follow some philosophical system. It's not the call to, to follow some area of morality. It's not the call to just say, you know what, he's a good teacher, I respect that, I I can, I can jive with that. Now, the call to follow Christ is to submit yourself to the Son of Man. It's to submit yourself to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who reigns supreme. You don't make him Lord. He is Lord. You submit your life to him and you follow him. Will you follow? That's the question. Will you follow? Let's look at the two men in our passage in Matthew 8. I think these two men teach us two principles of discipleship this morning. Two principles of discipleship. Two men that we can 
learn from regarding the cost of discipleship. What we're going to see is that the first man was really a little overeager. He was perhaps overzealous. The second man was, was maybe lacking. Maybe he was a little, you might say, undereager. He was holding back. And so we see these two dynamics going on. One who was overeager, one who was perhaps too reserved. So the first man in verse 18, really verse 19 and 20, is the man who comes up to him and he, he hears Jesus give the command, hey, let's go across the lake. Let's go to the other side. And this man looks and what does he say? He says, I'll follow you wherever you go. The, the understanding here in the, the Greek is that he's most likely just saying, hey, it doesn't matter if you're here or on the other side of the lake. I'm going to be there. I want to come and hear what you're saying. I'll, I'll go on here or over there. I'm just going to go, right? Now, the principle, here's the principle we learn from this guy, is that we do not follow Jesus for comfort or convenience. That's not the reason that we follow Christ. It's just for, for, for comfort and, and convenience. It's when he kind of almost flippantly kind of just in the spur of the moment says I'll follow you wherever you go it doesn't matter you go across the lake I'm there Jesus reply perhaps catches us a little off guard because what he does is he replies and he looks at the man and he says you say that but there's a cost to following me there's a cost to following the son of man and he warns that that, that cost may bring discomfort it may indeed bring sacrifice we are not promised the, the conveniences that other have, others have as Christians. We, we don't have this picture of, of Jesus sitting up in a mansion and kicking back beside the pool. We don't have this picture of, of Jesus riding around on the shiniest, fastest, coolest donkey in town. That's not what the picture of Jesus is. We have a picture of one who says, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's not easy. Some of the comforts that we may have, you may not have. And now, here's where this lands in reality for us. Is that if, if we're real and honest with ourselves, most of us in here, if not all of us in here, live a pretty comfortable life. I, I would go so far as to say, if you just compare us across the world, we all live a very comfortable life. We all really live an easy life, a free life. And so we have to wrap our heads around and really ask ourselves this question, if it were not so, would I still follow Christ? If, if I were in a land where to follow Christ meant my life, perhaps, would I be sitting in here today? Would I risk it if it was truly a risk to come here today or am I following out of comfort am I following because it's convenient no real risk of loss no real risk of difficulty is is my discipleship does it have strings attached is there some fine print, perhaps, that I've written out that maybe other people don't see? It's like, I'll do this, but I probably won't do that. Are there strings attached to our discipleship? Do we have limits? Do we have certain lines that we will not cross when it comes to following Christ? 
We have certain places that we will not go. I'll follow as long as you don't call me there, Lord. I'll follow and I'll be committed and I'll invest in my, my children and I'll encourage them to go to church. But if you call them to go here, I don't know that I can support that. Are there lines? Listen, there's no fine print with Christ. He was very clear. He, he didn't issue a call to discipleship and a call to follow him. And we go and we follow him. We go, oh, wow, I didn't realize that. Man, you should have told me. No, Christ is very clear. He's brutally honest with us. The cost of following him. In John 15, 18 to 25, he warns that his followers will be persecuted. We will be. We're not above our master. If they persecuted him and the prophets before him, they will persecute us. Persecution will be there. In Matthew 10, 16 to 23, Jesus warns us that, that following him may bring division in your family. It could bring division in my family. I don't faithfully follow Jesus because my kids do. But there could be a day when the six of us have different allegiances when it comes to Christ. I pray that's not the case. And within my power, I'm going to do everything I can to invest in them, to lead them in the Lord, and to impart upon them a love for Christ. But I understand there may be a time, according to Jesus, who says, there may be division in your family. Some of you are walking through that now. You live in that. That is not a hypothetical situation. You understand what it means to have family members that disagree, family members that oppose you in walking with Christ. Following Christ is hard. In Matthew 16, 24 to 26, Jesus warns us that following him demands daily sacrifice. It means taking up your cross daily and following him. That we would daily put our own desires and our own pleasures to death to follow him. Matthew 19, 16 to 22. The rich young ruler. Jesus warns that his disciples may have to give up worldly possessions. I mean, I think if we're just being honest, if I'm being honest with you, that's a big question for us in the United States. If I had to give up the things I own, would I do that? Is my worth in what I own or is it in Christ? Is my worth in my skill and my name or is it in Christ? Following Christ is not easy. It is not something that guarantees comfort, convenience. Comfort and convenience in following Christ has been a part of American Christianity in the years past. It's not as easy now. And it looks like it's probably going to get more difficult. That's not a slight on anything or anyone. That's just the reality of where we are. 
when it gets hard to follow Christ, when it gets uncomfortable, will we follow Christ? Will we follow him? Second principle we learn is from the second man. Verse 21 to 22, so you have the one man who is just eager. I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, wait a minute. You need to consider this. may not be quite as comfortable as you think. Don't follow me for comfort. Don't follow me for the fun of it. Count the cost. The second man says to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So while the first man was perhaps overeager, we see here the second man seems to be perhaps a little under-eager or reserved or looking going, well, I need to take care of this. The principle we learn here, the second principle is this, is that we must not wait or delay in following Christ. We must not wait or delay in following Christ. Now, some people read this, and it's easy to do so. You read it, and you, you see this man say, hey, let me go first bury my father. And then you hear Jesus go, follow me and leave the dead, dead to bury their own dead. And, and it's easy. You look at that and go, good grief. How insensitive of Jesus is that? And the guy's lost his father. Just let him go take part in the funeral and, and then follow. What's wrong with that? Well, the reality is, is if the guy's dad has just died, he's not going to be at the side of the lake listening to Jesus teach, right? It's, it's pretty common that if that happens, the, the man is taking care of his family. He's there grieving. He's mourning. And so, so scholars look and go, this isn't the case. It isn't the situation where this guy's dad has just died. And he says, Jesus, can I go take part in the funeral today or tomorrow and, and then follow you? No, what's, what, what it is, it's, a, it's an idiom. It's a way of him saying, let me take care of my father. And then once he has passed and I bury him, then I'll follow you. It's a way of him saying, you know what, I'll follow at some later time in the future. R right now, it's just, it's just not really convenient. I, I want to I wait. I'll, I'll follow you at some point later. And that's not what Jesus calls us to do. Jesus doesn't say, hey, follow me when it fits into your timing, when it fits into your plan and your picture, then follow me. No, the, the call is to follow Jesus now. The call is to let that take care of itself and you follow me now. That's the importance of the, the text that we looked at as we meditate on Scripture beforehand. That you, you just want this guy to hear that teaching, right? In, in, in Mark chapter 10, we, we looked at that and it's, it's coming right out of the, that whole dialogue with the rich young ruler and the disciples hear that and Jesus says how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. But he says what is impossible with man is possible with God for all things are possible with God. And, and hearing that, Peter looks and, and they're astonished, it says. And Peter looks at him and says, what of us? We, we've left everything. We, everything that we've known, our, our families, our trade, our profession, we've left it to follow you. Was that a cost too great? And, and Jesus says, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Oh, the, the cost may be great. There is indeed a cost to following Christ. 
But that cost is absolutely worth it. It's absolutely worth it because Christ is of supreme value. There's nothing greater, nothing more to be treasured than that of following Christ. And how often I've heard people say, well, I'll follow Jesus. I'll, I'll, I'll express faith in Christ and get baptized when I'm older. Or I'll, I'll do it when I'm out of college. Or once I settle down and I get married and we have some kids, I'll, I'll do that because I want my kids to go to, you know, to, to grow up to be just good kids. And so I want them to be in church. So maybe I'll, I'll wait till then or I'll wait and, and just wait until I have more time. Things are just so busy right now. I'll wait till, till I'm just not quite as busy. Or I'll wait till I've taken care of this. Once I take care of this, I'll have more time. It'll be easier. It'll be more convenient. And then I'll follow Jesus. That's what this man in Mark 8 or Matthew 8 is saying. Well, let, me, let me take care of my dad. And then I'll follow you. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You follow me now. Follow me now. There, there's no delay. There's no waiting. Why? Because the reality is, is none of us are promised tomorrow. None of us know what tomorrow holds. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. That's the reality. That's why James wrote in James 4, 13 to 16, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We're not guaranteed anything. It's not one of those things where we say, you know what, I'm just going to wait. I'll wait till later. I'll wait till I get out of high school. I'll wait till I get out of college. I'll wait till I'm married. I'll wait till I have kids. I'll wait till I'm not as busy. I'll wait till it's more convenient. I'll wait till I can take care of my parents. I'll wait, I'll wait, I'll wait. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. Are you waiting? Are you assuming that you have tomorrow? Follow Christ today. Follow Christ today. We need to count the cost. Daniel read that text from Luke. Daniel and I were talking before and he said, thanks for giving me the most difficult text to read in the Bible. I told him it's not hard to read, it's just hard to hear. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And he goes on to give those two illustrations of the one who would build a tower he says, count the cost of building before you embark on it. Or else you get to the end and everybody around looks and goes, what was that guy thinking? He never even considered the cost before he started. Or before you go to war, count the cost. Can you defeat the army of 20,000 with your 10,000? Count the cost first. Otherwise, you're going to be begging for peace. Count the cost. Christ has made clear that there is a cost to following him. But the cost is great because the value is greater. 
The cost is great because Christ is greater. We don't follow Christ for conveniences. We follow Christ for Christ. We don't follow Jesus for the things that we get out of it, for the comfort. We follow Jesus for Jesus. We don't follow Jesus because he's trendy and there's some really nice graphics that we can put on the back of our vehicles. We follow Jesus for Jesus. We don't follow Jesus because it looks nice on Facebook when we post things and it's motivational and makes us feel good when we read nice stories. We follow Jesus for Jesus. And when we follow Jesus for Jesus, it may indeed be very difficult. It may come with a great cost. I'll leave you with this from J.C. Ryle. He says, let us keep nothing from young professors and inquirers after Christ. Let us not enlist them on false pretenses. Let us tell them plainly that there is a crown of glory at the end. But let us tell them no less plainly that there is a daily cross in the way. There is indeed a crown of glory that awaits every follower of Christ. But there is a cross to be taken up daily as we follow him. Let's pray. Where we bow and God, as we do, I know there are people sitting in this room who are waiting. God, I pray that you would do a work of salvation in their lives, Lord. That they would follow you. God, I know there are those in the room that are considering the cost. Some who perhaps have followed just for the conveniences. Perhaps some who have been deceived and they're, they're following for the blessings of Christ rather than Christ. Lord, you don't call us to follow you for the conveniences and comfort, to get stuff. You call us to follow you because you are the only way of salvation. Because you are the Son of Man. And there is no life apart from you, O oh God. So God, whatever it may be today, God, if, if, if friends in this room are just following you flippantly and they've never trusted you, it's just this religion based on comfort and convenience. God, I pray that you would draw them out of that and do a great work of salvation in their lives, that they would trust you, that you would bring new life into their dead hearts, and they would trust you in faith today. And God, if it's one who is just sitting back and waiting and presuming upon tomorrow, God, I pray that you would release them from that, open their eyes to their need for you and the, the brevity of life, that they would trust you in faith. God, as, as life gets difficult and is difficult and perhaps gets more difficult for us, I pray, God, that you would strengthen our faith, that, God, we would boldly follow you, that, God, you would hold us fast, that our lives would be set apart for you and for your glory. God, strengthen us to follow you today, we pray.
In Christ's name, amen.